Welcome to the 29th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of consumer, retail, and commerce. Joining me today is Jana Martinez, the CEO of Lumia, a company building the components and experience to make our clothing smart. Most clothing today is dumb, meaning it's nothing more than the fabric on our bodies. But Lumia is inventing a litany of technologies, conductive inks, and sensors that bring heating, lighting, and touch to everyday apparel. We saw an opportunity to create fabric-based solutions that solves the designer's problem. Basically for them, they can just sew this in and add a functionality and also solve problems for the manufacturers that they don't have to become, you know, PCB experts or electricians to be able to assemble this because it's fabric-based. There's a lot of noise in the wearable space right now, but Lumia is building foundational technologies that could usher in a new era for clothing that does more than nothing. Here's my talk with Jana Martinez. So talk a bit about like what you were kind of working on before Lumi and then how that process happened to bring you over to this new company. So I've always been, you know, I like to say like balancing between two worlds, the creative arts, you know, I was an actor in New York for a while, I've been on episodes of Law and Order, done some radio spots, you know, like to dance. But then, you know, professionally, I was like, well, you know, I need to pay my bills and I like to understand how things work. And as a high school student, I went to LaGuardia, which, you know, is known more for the performing arts alums like Nicki Minaj, Jennifer Aniston, Al Pacino, but they have a very strong technical theater design technology program. And just understanding, you know, the science and the math behind beautiful things and how we can contribute to that from a technical perspective was always very compelling. And I've always said that some of the craftiest technically creative thinkers out there are people who come from those fields because you need to do things fast, reliably, on budget, and the results always have to be beautiful. So it doesn't seem like a direct overlap to fashion tech, but I found that a lot of that resourcefulness, sourcing prowess, because you need to find the most random things at the most random times, has proven to be pretty helpful in a startup environment from an entrepreneurial point of view. After college, I was out at Emerson for about two years and then returned to New York. My parents had gotten into a car accident. They're fine now, but I left school to take care of them and, you know, work a wide variety of jobs to support them through that time and had a moment where I was reflecting like, well, you know, what do I really want to do? What's my next move? Do I want to stay in this field? And then, you know, went back to school for audio engineering and just learning something new, technical, but still creative. And then through that education, was able to get this job in St. Martin at the American University of the Caribbean for their medical robotics lab. They were trying to create like this very high fidelity situation with the robots where actors could speak through the robots and control them and create really realistic ER scenarios for the medical students, which was funnily enough, kind of theatrical, but still technical. And, you know, Maddie and I had been staying in touch for several years and She had been tracking what I was doing, and I, of course, was tracking her success. And when I returned, she reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I think you've got a lot of the skills that we need at a startup. And, you know, I know your work ethic. Do you want to come and join and do this crazy thing together? So I've just found that even things that are not directly analogous can be pretty useful in startup environments. And so talk a bit about where the company was before you joined and kind of what happened as you joined and... Because it's a bit of this amorphous thing, and how do we anchor it? Maddie Maxey, Lumia's founder, founded Lumia as a result of her Teal Fellowship. She was a Peter Teal Fellow, which is basically a program where he gives you $100,000 to drop out of school and start a business. And you know, she saw an opportunity when she demonstrated this conductive ink at ID TechX, and Levi's reached out to her and said, hey, that's pretty cool. We'd like to get some samples. And that was kind of her aha moment. Like, oh, wow, there's a market here for what I think is a science project. Briefly, just explain what that 
project or collaboration was? So we didn't end up collaborating with Levi's. They just wanted to order, you know, a batch of the conductive ink to see if it would work for a project they were working on. But, you know, we didn't have any way of making, you know, a total amount of that conductive ink. It wasn't scalable. It was a studio project. And conductive ink is what she did. How would you just sure, in layman's so terms? If we think about what a circuit is. It's patterns of conductivity and non-conductivity. That's how you can channel power. That's how you can channel electricity. So Maddie wanted to find a material that could be directly deposited to textiles, which means it would need to be pretty high viscosity so that it doesn't bleed through the fibers while maintaining integrity from a resistance point of view so that power can channel through. So a conductive ink basically has metal in it and is suspended in a base that allows it to stay on the surface of a textile. The trick with conductive inks for textiles is that, one, if it's low viscosity, it'll bleed, so you won't get any clarity for your circuit. And on the other side, if it's very viscous, you can't put it through a digital inkjet printer. You need, you know, specialized machines. It's not necessarily scalable, even though the actual materiality of the ink was great for textiles. Lots of apparel companies saw the ink, saw how it performed. There was a lot of interest and excitement. And based off of that interest and excitement, she went on to raise a small amount of fundraising to start the created, which is what we were formerly known as, kind of like Prince. And we worked as a studio to create wearable tech prototypes with our unique blend of technical expertise and Maddie's apparel expertise. She's worked in you know major fashion houses in Paris, interned at Tommy Hilfiger, is a great seamstress and great designer on her own. And we build projects. The Zach Posen LED dress is probably our most popular or famous project and collaboration that we made as the created. And while we were doing these wearable tech samples and one-off projects for brands, you know, when I joined Lumia, which was about a year and a half ago, I saw an opportunity. I was like, well, you know, there aren't scalable industry solutions for these use cases. People want to be able to provide lighting in their clothes, heating in their clothes, but things that are currently existing are not meant for apparel. They're not washable, they're bulky, they're uncomfortable, they're very hard to manufacture. And a lot of the work that Maddie was doing on the back end, you know, I saw an opportunity to find supply chain partners that'd be willing to find a way to scale her inventions, which are pretty wide and pretty amazing. So when I joined, originally it was in an operations capacity, and I kind of took the liberty a year and a half ago to seek out supply chain partners domestically mostly to protect our IP, who'd be willing to try to, you know, screen print our conductive ink or try our e-patterning process, which is how we process a conductive material that we developed in-house. So that was about a seven-month process, trying to find partners that'd be willing to take this risk with us and say, hey, if we can pull this off, there's a huge market here that we could capture. When we got that supply chain in place, I encourage Maddie and our investors are pretty supportive of this to pivot the business from the studio called The Created to a B2B business similar to Gore-Tex, now called Lumia. You know, Maddie really felt that there was an opportunity there for her to focus on innovation, which is, you know, basically why Lumia is Lumia. And, you know, we kind of switched roles. Now she's chief innovation officer. My title is CEO. And we find that that's a really great division of skills and allows Lumia to continue inventing great things. And, you know, while I look out for the business end. So that's kind of a overview of how we got here. Yeah, no, that's great. So talk a bit about how you thought through that shift would be interesting, how you kind of came to Gore-Tex as the example. How did that all come together? 
So we had gone through an accelerated program called XRC, and through that program, they connect you with different mentors in the industry. One of the mentors that we were connected with was Rob Cook, who was formerly a Gore-Tex, like early day Gore-Tex sales guy. And in talking to him about the idea that I had, like, you know, there's an opportunity here, I think, for us to pivot as a B2B business and trying to find a business model that reflects what we want to do, which is have a brand that protects our materials and also have opportunities for licensing and royalties. He was like, well, you know, don't look further than Gore-Tex. It's a super successful model. Consumers recognize the material and they're in a ton of products. So you don't need to be limited to making your own and goods. So, you know, he really gave a lot of critical early advice into how to set this up, what to be looking out for, and how to position ourselves. And I kind of took that advice and went running with it internally in how we presented ourselves to potential brand partners. Definitely getting advice from folks who've done it before is advice I'd give to anyone. It always helps. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know what preferred term you have, whether it's connected, fashion tech, smart fabrics, any of these things. Where was that kind of when you started and what was kind of the opportunity or you know, the untapped piece of it that you said, okay, we can do something different than what has been done before. Well, you know, what you ended up finding was two schools of thought and two kinds of problem solvers for the issue. Like highly tech-focused companies looking around at what they already had in inventory and saying, well, can we stick this on a fabric? All right, let's invest in a good adhesive that we can stick this component that is usually in computers on a fabric. So there was a lot of technical folks who had economies of scale that were saying, we probably have something we can add. Right, just like a bolt-on. Yeah, a bolt-on. And you saw a lot of products on the market that reflected that. But what you found is that the user and the consumer really didn't respond positively to that. It felt gimmicky. It was not comfortable. It wasn't practical. People don't want to be aware of their technology. If you think about the success of the iPhone, it's that it's very effortless doesn't interfere with your life or create any significant new habits. So that was one school of thought. And then on the other side, you had very fashion-oriented people who understood the desire but really didn't have the skills. So then you'd get a lot of art pieces, you know, like beautiful illuminated things or things that were completely impractical and served no purpose but were truly lovely, but you couldn't sit in it. So you ended up, you know, getting very divorced from beauty and function tech folks kind of foraying into the space and design-centered people who weren't really thinking about, well, is this practical for the day-to-day wear? And we saw an opportunity to create fabric-based solutions that solves the designer's problem. Basically for them, they can just sew this in and add a functionality and also solve problems for the manufacturers that they don't have to become, you know, PCB experts or electricians to be able to assemble this because it's fabric-based. So, you know, we really saw our competitive advantage being our base material and how we created these circuits and how easy it was on both sides without anybody needing to learn a bunch of new skills, kind of being the hybrid between the two industries. So I guess putting on a bit of like a skeptical lens, talk about why, like, why does this need to exist? Why does it exist? Why hasn't existed? What's kind of the like layman's understanding of why this? You know, wearables has kind of become a dirty word because there's so many pointless wearables out there. People are like, "Why, why do I need that? And that's good. It's good feedback from the user. But if we think about clothes, it's really some of the first technology that humans ever made. You know, they saw a sheep and said, I'm going to turn that into something. I mean, that's pretty crazy, all the processing that goes into it. But if we think about it at the same time, there hasn't been any real technical revolution. If we look at the digital world, all of our intelligence is in plastic and metal components, and our clothes are pretty dumb. We carry them with us everywhere we go. Why shouldn't your jacket automatically respond to the temperature and heat up? Why can't you control your TV from your couch by rubbing on the armrest? There's a lot of ways to add functionality and seamless intelligence to our environment, but it's not possible until we create flexible 
durable textile circuitry to go those places. So we see an opportunity to make the clothes you wear and the things you sit on the new interface so that you don't need to carry around these metal and glass bricks to interact with your world. You know, So the vision that Maddie has, a vision that I share is this screenless future where you're not looking down at a screen, but the world around you is responsive because it has that intelligence kind of baked inside. So we see ourselves as the technical foundation for that new interface. You know, Things like, oh, track more steps. It's not very meaningful. But a jacket that heats would be meaningful for a lot of people or, you know, a large trackpad for disabled folks to interact with screens would also be meaningful for a lot of people. So that's how we go about design and why we think it's important. And so talk about the first year or so. What was happening? What was it like? What was that early phase like as you pivoted to the B2B side? What's interesting, and I'm sure lots of other startups probably have experienced this, is that everybody has a lot of opinions. One of the hardest things to do, I find, is to you know, stick to your true north when everyone's saying, just get to market, make a kit, just get to market, do a gimmicky thing. You know, Lots of opinions and advice from well-meaning investors, well-meaning advisors, and you know, there's that pressure to get to market. And, you know, the challenge on our side was holding to our vision of what we thought was the best long-term play, which is, no, we need to find scaling partners, because if we can do that, we can really provide a meaningful solution and we can really cash in. If we do something gimmicky, we're going to ruin our brand value. We're going to ruin our name. And there's no need to do that. There's a lot of people doing gimmicky things. We can stay the course. It's a risk to take as a startup. And there is definitely scary moments, but it's paying off now. So we're glad we stuck to our true north, but it's a hard thing to do. Did the product at all change as you shifted from the studio to the business? Absolutely. You know, there was a balance between what do we do in-house and what do we do with partners? Um, you know, who do we talk to and who, who do we not? Are we doing these marketing pieces? You know, it was a question of focus. What are we going to focus on? So, you know, initially it was a lot of these, you know, one-off products that don't need to last five years. But then with this B2B pivot, we needed to be thinking about and making design choices that would last five years because a typical garment in someone's closet sticks around for about that much time. You know, it was really a pivot in what is a success component? You know, what is a meaningful execution look like? So there was definitely that. And also saying no to things that maybe would bring cash in, but would distract from these longer term product development goals. You know, initially it was a lot of Oh, someone wants to do this cool project? Okay, we'll do it. Someone wants to do that thing? Okay, we'll do it. It's cash in the door. And then it became more so, no, we really need to be selective with who we work with to advance these technical requirements. And so you mentioned the first year was a lot about kind of focusing on scale and partners and all that. How did you kind of approach that? Did you have experience doing that previously? And how did it go? The second question, the answer to that is no. I did not have experience working with manufacturers before I joined Lumia. But I did have experience calling random people as a tech person and asking them for things and convincing them that they should do it. So it's basically the same thing. It's basically <laughs> the same thing. So it wasn't too hard. And you find that manufacturers are pretty much like anybody else. We made a strategic decision to focus on domestic partners for a few reasons. One, no, nobody on our team speaks Mandarin. So there's that. Flying to China is expensive. And there's IP risk. Once you send things overseas, once you share that intelligence, uh, we also found that domestic manufacturers were really, really motivated and really open to favorable agreements with startups because they know that innovation is what's necessary if they're going to compete. They know that the smart textile revolution is coming. It's projected to be a $130 billion industry by 2025, which is pretty huge. Basically, what I did is I'd call folks and then I'd fly out and say, hi, 
This is what we do. Look at this cool sample. We want to do it with you. Are you willing to try something with us? Also, we can't pay you, but you can amortize all that cost if we get a deal. How about that? You know, kind of going at them, you know, very, you know, cards on the table. This is what we can offer. This is definitely what we can't. And are you down to dance? You know, what I found, and I recommended this to a lot of the startups that, you know, I know now, domestic partners are really willing to work with you. They want the innovation. And, you know, when you talk to people at a person-to-person level and get out of the email nexus of doom where no one responds, you find that people are really down to collaborate. So I'd recommend that to a lot of hardware companies that are looking to test scaling designs. Find domestic partners. You'll really find that they're really willing to make things work. And that's been critical to our success in designing our technologies for scale. So I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of like use cases in terms of what are some of the most interesting, exciting, all of that. And like, how futuristic are those? Are they five, 10 years away? Or are they actually very soon to have an impact? Sure. So we can talk about it in three different categories. So there's responsive heating, which is resistive heating element. There's capacitive touch slash sensing, which has a lot of varied use cases within that arena. And then just, you know, basic channeling power that can provide power to lights like LEDs and other components. So in the heating arena, you know, if you think about heated ski jackets and heated shoes, there are existing heating garments, but they're pretty bulky and they can't get into, you know, not big puffer jackets and the batteries are huge and the shoes are not very comfortable. We see an opportunity with our materials to bring that same functionality to everyday wear and to really reduce the bulk. And the responsive element of it, which is, you know, you go outside, there's a temperature sensor, it turns it on, you go inside in the subway, you're melting, it turns it off. You know, the seamlessness and detaching people from apps on their phone, that use case is very near term. We're actually closing on a pretty large contract for that specific use case, responsive heating. We've built several samples that are functional and prove it out. It's doable. It's possible. So we're excited about that use case. And the capacitive touch arena, you know, smart surfaces, of course, is a very exciting market. You know, turning all of your surfaces into an interface that can control your lights or can control your computer. We just recently had some press around a textile trackpad that Maddie made that can, you know, basically act as a mouse for your computer or a large digital canvas to work in the screen with a surface like that. So, you know, is that the best use case for capacitive touch and sensing? Maybe, maybe not, but it just shows the accuracy that our capacitive touch has. If you think about another use case for that, it's creating controls on smart garments. So if you can touch your sleeve and that work as a button, that's a lot nicer than a big plastic button. So bringing that sensing and responsiveness to garments and goods, we think is a pretty exciting avenue. Oh, and I actually should probably talk about haptics. We see an opportunity for direction, like a living GPS in your shoes or in your clothes, you know, turn left, turn right, or just, you know, injury prevention in a much less intrusive way. If you have a little vibrating sensor on your shoulders, if you bend the wrong way, it kind of gives you that trigger if you're working in a warehouse to straighten up and lift with your knees. And then for lighting, it's just basic safety. If you're running outside, it'd be great if your running jacket lit up once it turned dark so that you're not dependent on the reflection of headlights to keep you safe. So those are, you know, kind of blasting through the use cases what we're really focused on is adding comfort, safety, and confidence. That's what we want to do. Those three things is our core focus. And all of those applications are very near term. What we need is less risk aversion in the industry because it's not going to happen unless money goes into producing it. So it's not that far out there. There's an interesting dichotomy that you've alluded to, which is the breadth of opportunities here and kind of the specificity of focus. How do you, one, navigate that? And then two, 
how did you end up that, you know, the Gore-Tex like layer of business that you fit into the stack, so to speak, is kind of where you want to be? Because I'm sure this has happened that where there are plenty of other companies that would have gone down these manufacturing rabbit holes. They would have gone down trying to be in a brand, but they make the clothing. Like, how did you figure that all out that that was the right answer? Pretty much, you know, when you're going to go shopping for a product, you tend to do a lot of competitive research. Like, oh, is this the best shoe? You know, and, and when we were trying to decide on a business strategy, it was something pretty similar. It's like, okay, well, who's out there? What are they doing? And do they have the resources to do it, to execute it? Well, you know, there are competitors in the space that are much larger than us who are doing great work, like DuPont, Forrester Roner. Flexes, you know, just partnered with Moss last year, which is a major manufacturer. So, you know, they're big guys, you know, playing ball. And we're going to let them handle what they do and not try to go down that road because it's really capital intensive. Being a brand, you know, we kind of saw that as an opportunity to spend a ton of cash trying to compete to be a brand. Or we could provide for all of these brands while being a brand of our own. We just saw it as an opportunity to capture more of the market without having to invest in trying to be competitive on the brand side. That's not really what we want to do. We don't really care about making a fancy leather jacket. We do care about making that thing warm. That's where we care. So on our side, we wanted to avoid going down the procurement route and nobody knowing that it's our technology because then that really kills you on what you can command for margin, which is why, you know, being a brand in the Gore-Tex sense is just a good fit, but it was a lot of research. You know, lots of folks went down the little bits route trying to create kits that designers could use. But how many people really want to learn how to make their own wearable product? Not many people. I don't. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I want to buy a product that already does it for me. So we just kind of tried to see how many people have a need and how can we serve those largest groups of people, kind of million ethics, you know, serve the greatest amount for the greatest good. And we saw on the manufacturing side, B2B play was the strongest. And for the consumer, they just want to buy the thing. They don't want to make it. So that's kind of how we came to that. But it was a lot of soul searching, a lot of, you know, competitive analysis and just kind of thinking, what are we really good at? And and what do we actually want to do? And guess what? It's not designing shoes. Definitely not. There's a lot of kind of downward price pressure in the market right now. What is the cost of this stuff? How does it end up impacting the customer? Kind of who fronts it? Let's unpack that whole piece. I would say that that culture is what's really destroying the apparel industry. And I wouldn't be the first person to say it. It's definitely not an original thought. A lot of that has to do with a lack of understanding of the ecosystem that we all operate in, whether we want to recognize it or not. So if you're a big brand and you undercut and destroy your suppliers all the way down the chain on cost, you're creating an inevitable situation where you're going to reap that they can't continue to do business. So now you got to find somebody else. You know, and we still see this trend. People are still trying to get, you know, their cogs down, 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 down. And we kind of wanted to flip that expectation and say, no, you need to value your chain. You need to value our products because if you do, so will the consumer. And it's very basic. Everybody needs to win. On our side, from the gate, and we say this to any potential B2B partner, this stuff is expensive. But people pay $700 for a phone with a screen because it adds value to their lives. So if you're looking for a $20 component, that's not our company. You're really going to need to look elsewhere because it's costly. And it's not too different from the Gore-Tex markup that you get. Someone will pay an extra $300 for a Gore-Tex jacket because it's windproof and waterproof. And you know it doesn't cost them on their cost sheet that much to produce that material. But they're putting a value on the good. So, you know, we took what really was an unpopular position, which is, no, we're going to value price this because 
it's costly to produce. We took a huge risk. Our manufacturers took a huge risk, and the consumer will pay for technology if it's a good use case. So we just kind of dug our heels in, and we're like, yeah, we know what the trends are, but we don't care. And we're going to make the bet that the consumer won't either. And, you know, you just have to protect your margins. I think a lot of startups try to play the COGS game by going to China, by cutting quality, and that does not work in technology. People will accept a button falling off, but people will not accept a faulty technical product. So the standard of quality is very different for these two arenas. And since we're a technology company, really, in an apparel space, we need to hold ourselves to the tech standards, which means it's, you know, it's not going to be cheap. What is the output? Is this a roll of fabric? Is it a bucket of ink? What are the outputs of what you actually like inject into the process? The way that I would describe it is, you know, Lumia wants to take a lot of the liability off the apparel manufacturer for needing to learn how to create these circuit patterns. So what they receive from us is an insulated, pre-patterned element. Imagine a big patch that's the shape of two chess pieces on a jacket. So there's a left patch and there's a right patch that's large, and maybe there's two back patches. And then those have, you know, fabric leads that connect to the battery pack. And the factory can sew that in. We obviously work on rolls, and then we're going to be cutting and processing and, and insulating. What they receive is something that they just need to follow a tech pack, very similar to garment assembly, and add this piece in. So that they don't have to worry about, oh, uh, did I Did make I cut a wire? Yeah, yeah. Did, you know, what the heck? You know, that's very risky. And we actually found that that was a big challenge in other technologies that we're seeking to enter the space. Is, you know, it's asking a lot of facilities that really have never needed to care about a circuit in their life to suddenly know how to use these materials to create these use cases. So they get, you know, very easy to integrate patches so, you know, it's a set of, you know, a left panel. It's a set of a right, right. panel. It's pretty turnkey. Yeah, it's easy for them. Talk a bit about the sustainability piece of this. You alluded to before kind of the average life of a garment being five years, which seems really long just given all the fast fashion stuff happening, but kind of how sustainable is all this and what are the kind of general hopes of the impact of everything you're working on for sustainability more broadly? That's a really important question. It's one that we think about. Generally, technology products are, you know, resource intensive. Anything that's conductive is obviously metal-based. Anything that's metal-based needs to be mined. So, you know, there's that. We source from a few different groups and we try to make sure that the sourcing is ethically done, but you can never guarantee anything. One of the reasons that we wanted to have these separate pieces that can be removed is that, okay, well, at the end of the life of this garment, what happens to all of this technology? You know, if somebody just throws this out, you know, where does it go? How do we make it easy for people to remove these things and potentially recycle them or separate the metal out later and then be able to reuse? So having these kind of modular plug and play integrations makes it possible for us to potentially strip the lining, take it out and have that material again and potentially reprocess or just use it again for, you know, a, a different product. So we're trying to design into that as much as possible. And in terms of how we process and pattern this, we're trying to be as efficient as possible with the metal that we use. As we grow, we'll have more resources to do better. But it's definitely something we think about at the outset, making sure that this can be easily removed. You don't want conductive materials just hanging out in a landfill if you could avoid it. So I guess a two-part question that's kind of connected. So the first is, what sort of time scale do you see all this playing out in terms of adoption and this becoming more of a reality of people's everyday lives? And then two, do you see that shift having a positive or negative impact on sustainability itself? Hmm. The second question is interesting. So I'll start with the first one. You know, in the next five years, there's going to be a lot more 
wearable goods. I think that's inevitable. There's a lot of work being done in that space. You know, on our side, we're looking at doing a few pilot programs, you know, smaller runs of, you know, consumer-ready goods. Kind of see what people respond to positively. You know, it's just generally a responsible way to go before you commit to a use case. You know, in terms of how that's going to impact scalability, you can bet your bottom dollar there will be unethical versions of what we're doing. But on the other side, there's a lot of concern for that. So I do see an opportunity for... Since this is such a new industry, a lot of regulation kind of being thrown down early, and, and you see that with groups like AFOA, you see that with, you know, the ASTM trying to set standards. So, you know, I think if this technology was available 10 years ago, we would have seen all kinds of horror stories. But there's a lot more awareness now that, A, the consumer cares about it, so people are trying to take steps from the outset like us, and B, it's wasteful. You know, if you're just being mindless about your metal components, it's costly. You know, metal's not cheap. So I think there's a unit economics angle to it as well that, that might keep these technologies from being really unfavorable to the planet. That's my hope. But, yeah. you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it also seems that if people are buying fast fashion clothing once today, throwing it out, if there's something more utilitarian, if there's more value they can get out of it, it would decrease their... Exactly. That's one of our big angles when we're, I hate to say pitching to companies, but we'll say that, is, you know, listen, right now you make a shirt that you go out of your way to make as cheap as possible and mark up as much as possible. And guess what? The consumer knows that and they don't care because you've stopped valuing your product, so they don't value your product. But if you're telling them, hey, our clothes work for you, and they work for you in the way that you want. And also, guess what? They look the way you want. Now someone has a personal attachment to that item, that garment, which is what clothes used to be. People were very attached to their clothes before this fast fashion revolution pretty much destroyed the planet. I mean, people cry when they break their iPhones. I've seen it. Grown men are like, oh, God, you know, my screen. So we see an opportunity to add value to an industry that's really devalued itself. That's the exciting part. It seems that a lot of stuff today is starting to move towards kind of a rental economy, whether it's cars or Netflix or digital goods, or all of that. Clothing has been the kind of holdout, rent the runways, trying to change that in some way. But generally, most people do not rent clothes, jackets, bags, stuff like that. Do you see the shift towards more connected apparel changing that in a way where renting becomes actually much more of an interesting option versus pure ownership? I tend to think, but, you know, I could be wrong. I don't have a definitive opinion on this, that people want to own their clothes. It's on their body. It's very personal. They're making a decision to make a statement. It's a reflection of who they are. They're not consuming something. They're presenting something. They're creating something every morning when they stand in the mirror. And people tend to want to own what they create. So when I'm making the choice to wear this item, it's saying something about me, and I want to possess that. So I tend to think that an access culture for apparel will be a hard one to really get mainstream. I also think there's like a bit of a finickiness from a hygiene point of view. People tend to be like, eh, I don't know who wore this jacket. You know, Rent the Runway is a really clever business for a very specific purpose. Like, yeah, I actually don't want to spend $5,000 for one night for some fancy dancy event I will never go to again. So, you know, they filled a need, but my everyday winter coat, that's my coat. I don't want, you know, Becky down the street to be wearing my coat. That's a little weird. So I tend to think that that won't really happen, but you never know. I think one of the interesting things, as I just further understand everything you all are doing, is clothing today is purely dumb. There's no connection to anything else today. We started to talk about like making the clothes smarter, which is kind of smarter in a self way, which is I can control the heat and I can do this and this. What about like the networking piece of this? So not just me, but the peer-to-peer piece and kind of, are you working on interested and excited about ways that clothing comes or becomes less of a selfish thing and more of like a communal or like interaction-based item? 
I think there's, you know, two sides to that. On the medical and industrial side, we really see a way to communicate critical information. Let's talk about capacitive touch for a second. If your hospital sheets can tell a nurse that you haven't been turned, which puts you at larger risk for bad sores, you know, that's not a selfish application of that technology. It's very useful in the medical field, and it's good for the patient. So we see a lot of potential use cases in, you know, the medical arena down the road. There's tons of linens in in hospitals to provide more useful feedback. So that's one area that we want to answer responsibly as we scale, but are excited about. On the industrial side, you know, injury prevention is super important. Uh, You know, there's an economics factor to that as well, you know, reducing workers' comp. But, you know, just having employers understand what's happening on the floor and know where their guys are. And on the military side, there's opportunities for safety and security there as well. So depending on the use case, there's a spirit of service. For the typical user, you know, let's say you or me, I tend to find that there's a really strong push for privacy. You know, there's the balance between connectivity and how connected do I really want to be? People don't really want random clouds in the sky knowing where they are at all times or who they're hanging out with or where they're going. That information is very useful for brands, but as we're designing our products, they don't talk to anything. The technology is self-contained. So the heating doesn't need to talk to your phone to know to turn on. It's a closed circuit. It's a closed system. And we think that most people will feel more comfortable with that than knowing their jacket sending off all kinds of signals, talking to who knows who. We'll keep an eye on what the trends seem like, but we're kind of making a play that people will pay for privacy. That's super interesting because my next question was about, are these things sandboxed or are they kind of connected to the internet? And it sounds like it's almost kind of a counterintuitive trend for kind of internet of things, IOT, which generally is just like, let's connect everything. You seem to be all taking kind of a much more kind of nuanced or wait and see approach maybe anybody on the team will tell you i'm like very opposed to extremes i'm very opposed to wide sweeping like a normal statements. person yeah i'm just like yeah you know <laughs> i'm a normal person help i come from a background that's like do things with a purpose you know you do not just do a thing like i honestly think most business people should take a theater class you know before you make a creative decision you really need to anchor it in a strong reason always so i kind of bring that background and maddie does as well and so does the rest of the team does this need to be connected to something does the heating application need to talk to a phone. Why? Why does it actually? What does it need to do? It needs to turn on. It needs to vary in temperature. It needs to be responsive. You can build that all in to the garment itself without having to talk to anybody. You know, the way we see it is if you're going to collect data, you better be prepared to defend that data. And there's no reason for us to collect it. Talk a bit about kind of scaling from an economic perspective. So you mentioned a wide range of use cases today. It sounds like you're starting on the apparel side. What is you know, a premium kind of higher end thing just from a pure economic perspective? How do you envision that cost going down to kind of have the number of applications you see kind of flourish and be economically pragmatic? You know, right now with the partner that we're working with, and we're really excited about this engagement, you know, we've already, with the volumes that they're anticipating, been able to get it down to a agreeable level for most merchants. It's definitely on the higher end of things, but it's not outside the realm of reason. You know, a component does not cost $500. We'll just put that out there. I think in terms of other applications like furniture or, you know, for shoes even, it's easier to get to market because it's not being thrown into the unhappy environment of a washing machine and then a drying machine. People really underestimate how aggressive those environments are for technology. I mean, it's water, it's soap, it's all kinds of stuff. It's being agitated and it's being banged around by a bunch of other stuff. It's really, really 
challenging environment for what we're doing. So we actually see a much easier, in some ways, cheaper plug and play into these other industries. But there's not as much of a demand right now. You see it in furniture, you know, they want cool stuff. But I don't think that there is as much awareness as we'd like there to be. But it would actually be easier in some ways, cheaper, because it doesn't require as much reinforcement. That's how I would put it. And so to get to a place where this technology is in bed sheets and hospitals and being used by the military and all that, is this a five-year time horizon to get it there? Are we talking 30 years, like at a high level, kind of how do you look at getting into a place where it's widely available? This is a convenient answer, but it really depends on how much money we have. The challenges are knowable and they're also solvable, but it's a matter of capital resources and how much talent you're putting to it. So resources on both sides. So if we had a team that was just dedicated to making this completely compliant for, you know, OSHA and this guy and that guy and, you know, be safe for the hospital and uh, we could do it in five years. I say that not actually knowing all the things that are completely required to be in that environment. But, but there are plenty. As a startup, you have to kind of focus your funds and say, well, what is logical? What is the least risky? I certainly don't want anything in a medical environment that I'm not willing to put my life on because you want to be responsible. But their years out, we're going to be, I don't know, we're going to be doing some other crazy stuff because we're already halfway there. Yeah. So I think it's definitely more near term within the next five years. That's great. So talk about going forward. You've been there for a year and a half. It's been Lumia for about that about time. That time. Yeah. How do you look at kind of next one, two, three, five years out? So, you know, we're really excited about, you know, we've kind of been in stealth mode. Not kind of. We've definitely been in stealth mode. People <laughs> yeah. are like, who are you? Where are you? We're really excited to be collaborating with a, you know, major brand partner to bring these use cases to market and these smaller runs to really, you know, see the market reaction. So that's really big for us. We're stoked about that. You know, the next thing would be expanding those B2B plays to other brands and expanding those B2B plays to other industries. So I think five years from now, yeah, the heated jacket will be out there. So will the shoe, the sensing, you know, furniture will also be out there and, you know, responsive lighting for safety also there. So all the use cases that we're talking about, I think five years from now in the dream is that everyone's got a Lumia garment, you know, like a Gore-Tex jacket, a a Lumia co-branded garment or piece of furniture and that's kind of the standard that you're kind of confused if your apparel doesn't perform that's the goal we're working towards and you know especially with this partnership that we're gearing up for we're close to making it happen awesome thanks so much for talking oh thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. And my thanks to him for his time on it. I really enjoyed talking with Janet about Lumia's journey and how the company is balancing innovation and ease of installation to bring a product to market that actually makes a difference. Most fashion tech falls short here, and it's great to see Lumia's pragmatism, especially around what are the best applications for its technology. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Lana Alia of StyleEnd, Evan Fripp of Paul Evans, and Nadia Bujawa of Dia & Co. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.